I have a note in my calendar for February the 4th to read a couple of pages from J.C. Ryle's book, The Five English Reformers. Um, why read two pages yesterday, February the 4th, every year? Well, because uh, 468 years ago yesterday, the people of Smithfield, England, watched John Rogers calmly walk to the stake. Under the reign of Bloody Mary, he was, in the words of J.C. Ryle, the first leading English reformer who broke the ice and crossed the river. As he walked to the stake, he comforted himself by repeating the words of Psalm 51. I wonder if there's a passage of scripture that you would remind yourself of as you looked forward to your future, your eternal future. He chose Psalm 51, as, as many actually reformers did. Uh, Rogers, he walked on the streets as he walked to his death. He actually walked on the streets of his parish, the local area where his congregation lived, the people he pastored. Uh, he passed within the sight of the church that he shepherded, uh, the Church of the Saint Sepulchre, where he had preached and had done that work as a pastor for years. On his way, he had the chance to stop and greet his wife and ten children, none of whom he had the chance to see during the time of his imprisonment until that day, the day of his death. Ryle says that an immense crowd lined the street and filled every available spot in Smithfield. He said that when the, the crowd saw Rogers walking steadily and unflinchingly to a fiery grave, the enthusiasm of the crowd knew no bounds. They rent the air with thunderous Applause. Rogers, he was condemned to death because he saw and preached that salvation came by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. A French ambassador who was there uh, wrote at the time that Rogers went to his death as if he was walking to his wedding. John Rogers was able to calmly and confidently go to his grave because of what he saw in the Scriptures, and especially because of who he saw in the Scriptures. In the Scriptures, he saw a faithful God who kept His promises to His people to send His Son. He saw a faithful God who would rescue His people from the wrath to come and bring them into their eternal inheritance. He saw that, and he was convinced that that would be his future too. That he was walking to his wedding, and he was walking to glory. He believed that God would bring him all the way home. This morning, it is my prayer, my hope, that we will see our great God as John Rogers saw Him. The everlasting God who is worthy of all possible honor, confidence, and love. Worthy of entrusting our lives to, trusting that He's leading us all the way home. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 21. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage beginning on page 15. Here in this passage, we're going to see that God is leading and caring for His people, keeping His promises to them. As you're turning there, let me just remind you of what we've learned so far in our study of the book of Genesis. Of course, Genesis opened with God creating everything and everyone for His glory. He made the first man and the first woman, setting them in a beautiful garden, calling them to love Him, trust in Him, and follow Him. And yet, the first man and the first woman rebelled against God. And when they did, they sinned against God. They brought depravity, disease, decay, and death into the world. But God was not content to let corruption take over the world. He promised that He would send His Son. He would send His Son into the world to defeat sin and death and crush the head of the serpent. And so the book of Genesis is unfolding how God is going to do that. 
He's promising to send a son. And His promises have narrowed to Abraham and his offspring. There are at least two key aspects of the promise that God makes to Abraham. He promises that Abraham will have lineage, they'll have offspring, they'll have sons, seed, and that he will have land, a place for his people to dwell. God has promised that Abraham would have lineage and land. God made these promises in Genesis chapter 12 when Abraham was 75. Now in our study, we've been waiting for the fulfillment of those promises for nearly 10 chapters. But Abraham had been waiting for 25 years. In our last study, in Genesis chapter 20, we saw Abraham and Sarah stumble again. They failed to trust the Lord with their protection, but God, in His kindness, He remained faithful to the faithless. He delivered Sarah out of Abimelech's house, and now we're about to see Sarah deliver a baby, because God keeps His promises. In the chapter that we're looking at together this morning, we see that God keeps His promises concerning lineage and land. He keeps His promises to the just and the unjust. In Genesis chapter 21, verses 1 to 7, He sends Abraham and Sarah a son, just as He promised. And then, in Genesis 21, verses 8 to 21, uh, God preserves and prospers the life of Ishmael, just as He promised. But the chapter then closes, in Genesis 21, verses 22 to 34, with Abraham making a covenant, making promises to Abimelech, and keeping them. But it also reminds us that Abraham is still sojourning. He has lineage, it's begun, but he hasn't fully received the land that God promised. He only receives a kind of a foretaste of it here in Abimelech's land. Still he trusts the everlasting God. Abraham had to learn to trust God for the sending of his son Isaac. And he comes to the beginning of the chapter. And now he will have to learn to trust God for fully bringing about those promises of land. I wonder if you can relate Perhaps you have learned to trust God for salvation in His Son, and now you're learning to trust God to bring you all the way home to the land of heaven, promised land of heaven. Beloved, you can trust God because He keeps all of His promises. And you can trust God because He is with you in all of your sojourning, just like He was with Abraham, as we're going to find. You can trust God not merely to save you because and through His Son, but you can trust God to bring you into your inheritance. Indeed, the everlasting God will bring you into your everlasting home. Here's the sermon in a sentence. Trust the Lord to keep all of His promises and to bring you all the way home. We're going to unpack this truth in Genesis 21 in two sections under two headings. I think there's a rather fulsome uh, insert outline of the sermon there in your bulletin. We'll look at these two headings in the main. Trust the Lord to keep all of His promises and trust the Lord to bring you all the way home. Let's begin with our first point. Trust the Lord to keep all of His promises. For now, I just want to read the first seven verses of Genesis 21, where we see that the Lord keeps His promises to His people. Follow along as I read Genesis 21, verses 1 to 7. Genesis 21, verses 1 to 7. The Lord Yahweh visited Sarah as He had said. And the Lord Yahweh did to Sarah as He had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. 
And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Well, as I said, nearly 10 chapters later and 25 years later for Abraham and Sarah, the Lord kept his promises to Abraham and Sarah. Do you see how that's emphasized in the text? Really, in the first two verses there. In those verses, we read phrases like, As he said, and as he had promised it, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Moses, the author of Genesis, doesn't want us to miss the fact that God has fulfilled his promises. Just as he said, promises concerning a son. Promises made in Genesis 12, and 15, and 17, and 18. And notice too, that the son is from Sarah. In these two verses, we are not only told of the Lord's faithfulness three times, but we're told of the Lord's faithfulness to Sarah three times. God was particular about the fulfillment of His promise. Not only was He going to send a son, but He was going to send that son through a particular womb. Not just any old woman would do. Only the old woman Sarah would do. Now think about all of the obstacles that Abraham and Sarah went through during those 25 years. Obstacles and obstinacy through which God still kept and fulfilled His promises to them. They lied about their relationship, and Sarah was taken captive into an Egyptian household, Pharaoh's household. Abraham went off to war, where he could have been killed. Abraham and Sarah continue to age. They begin in their 60s and 70s, and Abraham progresses to nearly 100, Sarah to nearly 90. And then they lied about their relationship again, and Sarah was taken captive into a Philistine household. God kept His promises. He protected His purposes through all of that. Christian, you can trust God to keep His promises to you through all of your life's twists and turns. If He gives you life and breath, you can trust God to keep His promises well into your old age. You can trust God to keep His promises to you despite your sins and failings. Nothing and no one can stop the Lord from keeping His promises to you. And the rest of biblical history proves this too. From a nation, the nation of Israel, who fumbles in taking the land that God gave to them, to the sordid history of Israel's kings, to the complete collapse into apostasy and exile, and out of the rubble of the Old Testament history, what happens? Just like God visited Sarah, God visited Mary. And brings his son into the world just as he had said. Just as he had promised and at just the right time. In the first two verses of Genesis 21, they stress the Lord's faithfulness to his promises. And Christian, you need to trust that the Lord can be faithful and will be faithful. Not just can be, but will be faithful to you in all of his promises. Verses 3 to 5 then. They actually stress Abraham's faithfulness as a father. I wonder if you see that. Back in Genesis 17, verses 11 to 14, God commanded Abraham to circumcise the sons who were born into his household. And then in Genesis 17, verse 19, the Lord told Abraham that he was to name the promised son Isaac. And what do we see Abraham doing here? Well, if the Lord had told Abraham to do those things, as he commanded, then we see at the end of verse 4 that Abraham is doing these things, just as God had commanded him. Abraham calls his son Isaac and he circumcises him on the eighth day, just as God commanded him. In this way, Abraham is really a, a model for the people of Israel. For how they were to carry out and keep God's covenant to circumcise their children. And don't you just love the kind of exclamation point that is verse 5? 
Right? We're to be amazed, I think, that Abraham has a son at 100 years old. Now, here's a lesson for the young. The old must still obey the Lord. Right? Abraham's 100. He still has to keep obeying the Lord. And the blessings of God are not any less spectacular as you age. Take that comfort with you as you age. I'm sure Abraham was amazed at what God had done. He actually fell on his face laughing at God's promise. Back in Genesis chapter 17, verse 17, it was inconceivable to him. Sarah was certainly amazed by what God had done, as verses 6 and 7 make clear. Back in Genesis chapter 18, verse 12, she too laughed at the idea that God was going to give her a child in her old age. The Lord responded by making plain to Abraham and Sarah that nothing was too difficult for the Lord. Do you believe that? I mean, Sarah and Abraham are an example to you that nothing is too difficult for the Lord. He can do, and He does do, just as He says He will do. Here, Sarah is reflecting on that promise from God. And she's rejoicing in this laughter. What would people think of her? They would laugh out loud. Really, just as Sarah had done. Isaac's name, his name also means laughter. You know, sometimes the Lord's promises and the way in which He keeps them to us are unbelievable, even to us and others around us. They fill us with overwhelming joy. And others, too. The fulfillment of God's promises is still sometimes hard to believe. I mean, look at Sarah's question there in verse 4. Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? How would you answer that question? Who, Who would have said that to Abraham? God would have said that to Abraham. And He did say that to Abraham. God makes impossible promises and He keeps them. They're amazing and wonderful to His people. I wonder if you take joy in the promises that the Scripture tells us that God extends to His people. Take some time to recount God's promises and rejoice in them, delight in them. They should fill us with joy and force us to testify to His goodness and glory. I mean, think about Sarah with a baby in her arms. Her life was a living, visible testimony that God keeps His promises, no matter how improbable or impossible they might seem. In what ways has God showered you with His blessings and filled you with joy? Have you proclaimed God's goodness and grace to you? We can trust our God to keep His promises to His people, to the just. But we can also trust our God because He keeps His promises concerning those who are not His people, to the unjust. In other words, the Lord keeps all of His promises to everyone. That's what I want you to see in verses 8 to 21 of Genesis 21. Follow along as I read Genesis 21, verses 8 to 21. Begin there in verse 8. And the child grew, this is referring to Isaac, and the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So 
Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she, sent, then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about a distance of a bowshot. For she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from the heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Well, notice that these verses begin with a joyful feast, and they move quickly into a household fight, followed by a departure and a desperate plight. But the resolution comes when God opens, the Lord opens Hagar's eyes and announces he will keep his promises concerning Ishmael. Now, before we tackle the promise-keeping We need to consider the problem that prompts the need for the promise keeping. Is it not surprising that Abraham and Sarah are overjoyed with Isaac's life? No. They're delighted that the Lord has brought him into the world. They're sustaining him, growing him. The Lord is doing this. Not only were they joyful in his birth, but they were joyful that the Lord continued to grow and strengthen him. Their hopes are being established with his health. Isaac is probably being weaned somewhere around the time that he was two or three years old. And while Isaac is probably happy, Ishmael is clearly not. Ishmael is likely a teenager by now, and sadly, as he grew up, he grew in cruelty. It's true that the text says there in verse 9 that Ishmael was laughing, but the laughter implied in the text is one of scoffing and mocking. He was not laughing with joy at the occasion of Isaac's weaning, but he's laughing at Isaac. The Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 4, verse 29, that Ishmael persecuted Isaac. He is not for Isaac. He is against him. And this is actually just what the Lord told us Ishmael would be. So in Genesis chapter 16, verse 12, when the Lord foretold what would become of Ishmael's life, we were told that his hand would be against everyone and that he would dwell over and against his kinsmen. And so it begins here. Ishmael scoffs at Isaac, his kinsman, and his half-brother. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 24 tells us, That those who scoff are arrogant, haughty, and proud. Scoffing goes hand in hand with self-exaltation. Sadly, scoffers rarely see that you can never raise yourself up by putting others down. We should probably remember what God's Word says about scoffers in the Psalms, particularly Psalm 1-1. The psalmist, he opens the whole Psalter. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. We should all be warned by this. We should refuse to participate in scoffing. And children, let me encourage you here to be warned by Ishmael's example. Siblings should never scoff at one another, make fun of one another, or call one another names. You are so close to one another, and you know each other's weaknesses and sins. And 
Your scoffing can be especially painful to a sibling you're so close to. Jesus, think of Him, He never used a person's weakness as an opportunity to wound. And neither should we. Sarah's reaction in verse 10 is almost shocking. Right? She calls for the ousting of Hagar and Ishmael. And this makes Abraham deeply sad. No doubt because he loved his son Ishmael. Abraham and Sarah though, they have brought this upon themselves. They brought this pain upon themselves. Back in Genesis chapter 16, they tried to force the fulfillment of God's promises through a sinful scheme. Remember Sarah suggested that Abraham take Hagar as his concubine in order to bear her, a son. Together they distorted God's design for marriage to be a single, exclusive, and covenant union between one man and one woman. Together they distorted God's design for marriage as the sole context for sexual intimacy and procreation. Abraham and Sarah had given up on God's help. And so they tried to force fulfillment through Hagar's help. This division and their household was of their own making. Sin always has consequences. Sarah, though, had had enough. And she wanted Abraham to drive Hagar and her scoffing son out. Note in verse 10 that Sarah's reason for driving Hagar and Ishmael out Right? She desires to protect the inheritance of her own son, Isaac. And the Lord, He actually affirms this decision from Sarah there in verses 12 and 13, doesn't He? The Lord tells Abraham not to be displeased that Ishmael and Hagar have to go, but to do as Sarah says. The reality is, is that Ishmael was not the heir that God promised. He's not the heir of the blessings that were to come through Abraham and Sarah. God had emphatically made that clear to Abraham in Genesis 17, 19. So when Abraham, back in that chapter, tried to suggest that God fulfill his promises through Ishmael, the Lord told him, no, they will not come through Hagar and Ishmael. They will come through Sarah and Isaac. In fact, in Galatians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul reflects on what's going on here. Verses 21 to 31, Paul tells believers in that day to cast out trusting in human works to attain salvation. Just like Sarah cast out the slave woman from the house of Abraham. Abraham was to have nothing to do with a human attempt to force the fulfillment of God's promises. Especially now that God had kept His promises in Isaac. Still, God promised Hagar in Genesis chapter 16 verse 10 and Abraham in um, chapter 17 verse 20 that he would make Ishmael into a great nation. And that's the promise that God will keep concerning Ishmael. comes up here again in our text. You see there in verse 14, Abraham, he packs up and puts out Ishmael and Hagar. But soon their situation grows dim. They're in the desert, dying of thirst, literally. And God's promises to them seem to be on the brink of collapse, don't they? Hagar even places her son under a, a desert shrub, verse 15 there, and moves away from him. So that she won't have to witness the agony of him dying before her eyes. Verse 16. The language of the text actually contains kind of a a play on words or a play on an idea. The idea of actually being put out. So Hagar puts her son underneath a shrub. Just like Abraham put her out of his house. God had visited Hagar back in Genesis chapter 16 verse 8. When she fled into the wilderness after being mistreated by Sarah. And here we see that God visits her through his angel again. Hagar might have been cast out of Abraham's sight and sound, but she was not out of the Lord's sight. He heard her cries. He even heard the cries of the boy as he was on the brink of death there in verse 17. Now think about this. God's promises are in jeopardy, aren't they? 
If Ishmael had died in the wilderness, then God's promise back in Genesis chapter 16 and 17 to make of him a great nation would have failed. This is just like God. We need to remember this about how he sometimes fulfills his promises. Sometimes his promises appear to walk right up to the edge of failure. And then he shows himself faithful. He keeps his promises, all of them, in such a way that reveals that they only come by His grace and His power. We need to remember this in our lives. Sometimes His promises feel as though they're teetering on the edge, but they're not, as He's in complete control. And the Lord, He once again tenderly addresses Hagar's fears there in verses 17 and 18. He tells her to lift up Ishmael, for the Lord will lift him up as He promised. He's going to renew His promise to Hagar and make Ishmael into a great nation. The Lord's intervention is the turning point of Hagar and Ishmael's fortunes. The Lord opened Hagar's eyes and He opened a well. He provides water to sustain their lives. In a few short verses, we move from Hagar and Ishmael nearly dying to Hagar and Ishmael thriving. Look at verses 20 to 22. Ishmael is growing in strength and skill. He even marries a woman from his mother's home country of Egypt. He's now on his way to building a great nation. God keeps all of His promises to Ishmael and Hagar. That's because God keeps all of His promises to everyone. But you do need to realize something about these two, Ishmael and Isaac. There is a radical and essential difference between Ishmael and Isaac. I know that it seems like we could kind of end Ishmael's story with, and he lived happily ever after, right? Having a a family and growing into a great nation. God gives him great skill. He he has a a legacy that's growing. He's materially blessed. But it's not true. He doesn't live happily ever after. He doesn't live happily now. The reality is is that one day he died. And he died away from the blessing of the promised son. He died away from the head of the covenant. Away from Abraham. Do you know what Ishmael should have done? He should have. In the words of Psalm 2.12, kissed the promised son. He should have loved the promised son. It was his rejection of Isaac that led to his removal from the household God blessed. Friend, learn a lesson from Ishmael. Be careful of being content with God's material blessings while being separated from God's saving blessings. Be careful of being content with God's material blessings while being separated from God's saving blessings. Do not let the luxuries of this life lull you into thinking that you are at peace with God when there is no peace. The Bible teaches us that God causes the rain to fall and the sun to shine on the just and the unjust. And the Bible also teaches us that God's eternal and saving blessings only rest upon those who receive His Son, Jesus Christ, in faith. The earthly blessings that you enjoy should lead you to the Heavenly Father and to trust in His Son, the Son that He has chosen to offer His blessings through, Jesus Christ. Don't mock and reject God's chosen Son. Kiss the Son. Give yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry with you and you perish on the last day. Friend, God promises to save all of those who trust in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. One day, there will actually be a great feast of God's people. 
Those who rejoice in and receive God's Son in the here and now will share in that great feast. The book of Revelation calls it the marriage supper of the Lamb. And at the end of our service, all of those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and united with His church or showing that they've received Him, we're going to have a dress rehearsal and a foretaste of that feast in the new heavens and the new earth as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. God's promises to save all of those who trust in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, are true and faithful. And He keeps them. And yet God promises to cast out from His loving presence for all eternity those who reject His Son. So friend, believe that God offers you salvation in Jesus Christ. Confess that you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Confess that you have despised and rejected God's Son and that you're worthy of death and hell. And repent of that and turn from your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He will embrace you in His arms. Believe that Jesus lived for you the life of perfect obedience unto God the Father. Believe that Jesus died in your place on the cross, bearing God's just wrath against your sin and satisfying God's wrath against your sin. Believe that Jesus was raised from the grave on the third day so that you might be forgiven of your sins. Believe that in receiving Jesus, you will be received into God's household and family. In John chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus says, Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Believe that promise from Jesus. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you will not be cast out like Ishmael. You will be forever welcomed into the household and family of God. And if you want to know more about what it means to trust in the Lord Jesus, to receive God's Son, who keeps all of His promises in Him, come and find me at the door after the service. I'd love to talk to you about this good news, that you can be received into God's family instead of being cast out forever. Well, in Genesis 21, verses 1 to 21, we see that God keeps His promises to His people. He even keeps His promises to those who are not His people. Abraham has received the down payment of the promise of lineage in his son Isaac. But he has yet to receive the full inheritance of the promised land. So what should Abraham do? Well, he should keep trusting the Lord who keeps his promises. Or as in Genesis 21 verse 33 puts it, he should keep calling upon the name of the Lord. In Genesis 21 verses 22 to 34, we learn that we should not just trust the Lord for some of his promises and stop. But that throughout the whole course of our sojourning on earth, we should keep calling upon the name of the Lord. Follow along now as I read Genesis 21, verses 22 to the end of the chapter. Genesis 21, beginning there in verse 22. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants, or with my posterity. But as I have dealt, with, dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me, and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen, and gave them to Abimelech. And the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, 
What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord Yahweh, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Well, if the first 21 verses of the chapter recount a conflict over lineage, then the remaining, the kind of close of the chapter, recounts a conflict over land. And just as really the first two-thirds of the chapter taught us, encourages us to trust the Lord, so does the last third of the chapter. You'll notice in verse 22 that Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, Abimelech's army, they come to Abraham. Now, it's a little tense when the commander of an army shows up at your house, right? So we, we can sense that this is, this is going to be a, a tense conversation. And these men, uh, Abimelech and Phicol, they've actually learned over the years that Abraham is not to be trifled with. Abimelech himself felt the curse of the Lord on his whole household when he took Sarah into his harem in Genesis 20. The Lord even threatened him in his dream. Threatened him and his entire household with certain death if he did not return Sarah. And Abimelech, he relented, he returned Sarah, and he knew that the Lord was with Abraham in a very special way. And now Abraham has a son, a son in his old age. And clearly this is through supernatural power. Abimelech has given additional evidence, right, that the Lord is with Abraham. And that's why he says there, in verse, of verse 22, God is with you in all that you do. Abimelech knew that Abraham was not to be opposed. The purpose of this visit was not to start a war, but to form an agreement. This was a delicate matter because the last time that Abraham and Abimelech spoke in, in the text that we have, Abimelech was confronting Abraham over his deceit. This time, when Abimelech begins the bargaining, he makes Abraham swear that he will deal with him and all of his people with integrity. He's basically saying, like, look... We need to come to an agreement, but there can't be any shenanigans like there were last time. Abimelech, he even reminds Abraham that he's dealt kindly and generously with him. And this was true. Back in Genesis chapter 20, verse 14, we were told that Abimelech gave Abraham sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants. And then in verse 15, Abimelech even let Abraham kind of have his choice of land, wherever he wanted to live. Abimelech had treated Abraham well. And Abimelech wants Abraham to show him the same kindness. And Abraham verbally agrees to do so there in verse 24. And Christian, let's just pause here and reflect on what's going on here. You should be a person who is known for telling the truth. Right? Abraham had a sketchy past, didn't he? That's why Abimelech questions him. But you should be a person who is known for telling the truth and dealing in integrity. As we'll learn about tonight in Ephesians 4.22, we're to be people who put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through, what? Deceitful desires. Paul goes on to say in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, just a couple of verses later, that we, the Christians, should be those who have put away falsehood and speak the truth with our neighbor. That's what Abraham should have done. And we, our yes should be yes, our no should be no, our neighbors and employers, our friends, shouldn't have to ask us to be honest with them like Abimelech is asking of Abraham. 
But where you fail, repent and rectify that relationship. Restore the trust that was broken. We can tell the truth and deal honestly with our neighbor because we trust our God to keep us safe and to secure. Uh, perhaps Abraham has learned that lesson. Perhaps he's learned to tell the truth. So he, he, he trusts the Lord. He pledges to do that there in verse 24. Abraham's willing to deal openly with Abimelech, but they need to come to closure on one matter. Did you notice that there in verse 25? Abraham, he reproves Abimelech over a well that his servants had seized. Now, a well of water in that climate is going to be critical to life, right? If you can't provide water for your flocks or for your family, for that matter, you're as good as dead. So Abraham wanted peace. He dug that well, and he wanted Abimelech to give it up. He wanted peace, but not at the price of losing property and life. Abimelech acts as if he had no idea uh, what, uh, that this had happened. Right? He effectively responds, What? No! That couldn't be! You're only telling me about this now. He even blames Abraham. You see that there in verse 26? You did not tell me. He's deflecting, actually, like Abraham had done to him a chapter earlier. But don't you think it's hard to see Abimelech's servants seizing a well, especially from Abraham of all people, without his permission? I mean, Abraham is very delicately calling Abimelech's integrity into question now. Just as Abimelech had done with him. What's good for the goose is good for the gander, right? Let's, let's make sure we're being honest with one another going both ways. And you can hardly blame Abraham for questioning Abimelech's integrity. I mean, after all, Abimelech is willing to go around taking women into his household whenever he wants. We've already seen him do that a chapter earlier. Such a man who can't be faithful to his wife is suspect in every other area of his life. And then there's the fact that he's a Philistine. I mean... How many trustworthy Philistines do you come across in the Bible? I mean, take some time this afternoon and see if you can find one. He's a Philistine. Yes, uh, Christians can, can and should trust the Lord, deal with our neighbor in integrity, but we should also be wise in the agreements that we make with others. Because Abraham wants to secure this agreement, he makes a covenant with Abraham in verses 27 to 32. Uh, Abraham even solemnizes it by giving... Abimelech, these seven ewe lambs. And Abimelech, you see, is a little uncertain there. Like, what's, what's going on with these seven ewe lambs? There in verse 29. What's the meaning of this? The purpose of giving these seven ewe lambs, Abraham explains, is to establish the claim that he dug the well and that it belongs to him. So you're going to have to, like, accept my version of the history of this well. Abimelech, that's what's going on here. He's forcing him to agree that this was his well and that his herdsman would quit the, quit the claim and leave. They form this binding agreement, this covenant. They swear an oath to one another. And that's why Moses tells us there in verse 31 that the name of that place was called Beersheba. Now, the name of Beersheba means the well of the oath or even the well of the seven. Later in the Old Testament, this location became one of the southern boundary markers for the territory of Israel. So this land was becoming a part of the land that God promised they would one day give to his people. Here Abraham is receiving a foretaste, a small foretaste of his people's inheritance of the promised land. In this land being given and established to him. Now just as his son Isaac was a foretaste and a down payment on the promise that his offspring would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. So this little well was a foretaste and a down payment on the promised land that Abraham's offspring would one day inherit the whole land just as God had promised. And this, of course, leads Abraham to worship. 
God's keeping His promises to him. He responds in worship. Notice in verse 33 that he planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and there called on the name of the Lord. Abraham was putting down roots and planting trees, entering into communion with God. It's kind of one step back toward life with God in the garden that was lost in the fall. Abraham, he's actually done this kind of thing before. On two previous occasions, when he entered portions of the promised land that would be given to his offspring in the years ahead, he built an altar and he called upon the name of the Lord. He did that in Genesis chapter 12. When he passed through Shechem, he did it in Genesis chapter 13. When he passed through Hebron, Abraham worships the Lord here again in Beersheba. It's going to be a portion of the promised land. For now, the land belongs to the Philistines. But one day, it will belong to Abraham's offspring. Abraham was filling the prospective promised land with the worship of God everywhere he went. On the day, on one day it would belong to his descendants, and they would fill the land with worship too. And Christian, let me just encourage you to worship the Lord everywhere you go. Uh, you should gather with God's people and give thanks to God's name because Christ, because with Christ, you will be an heir of the whole earth. One day it will belong fully and completely to the Lord Jesus Christ. He reigns over it now, actually. And we are called heirs of that promise with Him. We should prepare for that reign over the whole earth with our Lord Jesus now by worshiping now. We should worship just like Abraham did, calling upon the name of the Lord, trusting the Lord. According to the writer to the Hebrews, Abraham saw the coming fulfillment of the promised land, but he greeted it from afar. That's what happens with us. Though Abraham wasn't receiving the full fulfillment of the promise, he still worshipped the Lord, didn't he? he? He still worshipped among the Philistines, just like we still worship among the world. Abraham was a sojourner, and so are we. The Apostle Peter calls Christians sojourners and exiles in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Abraham was trusting God that he would bring about the full fulfillment of his promise, even if he didn't receive it in full during his life. And the same is true for us too, right? We should trust that we're going to receive the full inheritance, even though we might not receive it in full in this life. Like Abraham, we should desire a heavenly country and trust in the words of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 16, that God is not ashamed to be called our God, for He is preparing for us a city. And He, in our worship, is preparing for us for that city. There's something remarkable about the two verses that close the chapter here. Our good God, do you see what he's identified as? As the everlasting God, or the eternal God, as some translations put it. And Abraham, he's identified as the sojourner. It's an interesting contrast, isn't it? There's the transcendent one and the transient one. Abraham is the trusting traveler. And his trust in the eternal God is well-founded. Abraham may change, but the everlasting God never will. The everlasting God remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that's why He can be trusted. He rules over all of His people, all of the time, and in all places. Everywhere Abraham goes, God is there. Everywhere you go, God is there. Abraham's God will not just outlast all of his sojourning, but He will go with Abraham everywhere he goes. He will do the same for you. Think of what comfort the people of Israel would have derived from this account. Remember, the book of Genesis is written to the people of Israel who've come out of Egypt and are on their way 
toward the promised land and hoping to enter into the promised land of heaven. They're sojourning through the wilderness. They were seen Abraham. He's sojourning to it. God, the everlasting God, is with him. They would have remembered that God was with them too. Just like he was with Abraham. They could remember they can trust him to bring them all the way home into their inheritance, into the promised land. They were looking forward to it. He was already making good on his promises to give Abraham a multitude of descendants. I think about the people of Israel. They've looked around and see, seen hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of the offspring of Abraham. He brought them out of the house of Egypt, and he would not fail them now. He would bring them into the promised land. Though the path before them from their vantage point was uncertain, from God's perspective, it was completely certain. He was the eternal and everlasting God who was going to keep His promises to His people. And He did keep His promises to His people. Since He was everlasting, He was never going to run out of time. We sometimes feel like, God, when are you going to fulfill this on this time scale? And we have a very limited time horizon. But God doesn't. He's the everlasting God. He's he's never going to run out of time and fulfilling His promises. He will fulfill them in His perfect time. He sees beyond what we can see with our limited vision and sight. We can worship the everlasting God. We can be sure that He will keep His promises to us and bring us all the way home. And this frees us to live bold and fearless lives. We may not know our future, but our God does. And His eternal character secures it. Which brings me back to John Rogers, as we conclude. John Rogers could walk to the stake as if he were going to his wedding because of what he knew about God. He knew what Abraham knew. He knew that like Abraham, his eternal and everlasting God had promised that he had prepared a place in heaven for him. He knew that Jesus had promised that he would come and bring him to himself. He knew of his certain future. He knew what God would do. He knew that God was trustworthy because he kept his promises, not just to send Abraham a son in Isaac, but to send His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Rogers, like Abraham, knew that he could trust God with his future because he knew that God had promised that he would enjoy a heavenly promised land. Rogers trusts the Lord to keep all of his promises and to bring him all the way home. And Christian, you can too. After all, your God is the everlasting God too. He's the same God. He's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and John Rogers. And Christian, He is your God too. He will keep all of His promises and He will bring you all the way home. Because He loves you. And He loves you so much that He desires to be so near to you. That one day, He'll call you home. You can walk in this life and walk everywhere you go like you're going to your wedding. Because the Lord is ruling over your life as the everlasting God. Let's rejoice in that now in prayer. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we rejoice that you are the sovereign and saving God. Uh, We rejoice that you have sent your Son into the world to unite us to Him so that we will always be His people, tied to Him. Uh, following Him as His sheep, and making our way home to Your promised land. Father, we pray and ask that day by day, You would strengthen our faith. Father, we pray that You would uh, draw near to us when our, our, our faith is, is shaky and we're doubting. Father, we pray and ask that You would comfort us by Your Holy Spirit and remind us of the promises of Your Word 
that you will not fail. That you are a God who cannot fail. That you always remain the same. You're everlasting. Father, remind us that we as transient people can trust the transcendent, sovereign, glorious, promise-keeping God. We pray and ask you to remind us that you are a Father who loves us in your Son. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen.